This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're going to talk about LIBOR, or the London Interbank Offered Rate. Sounds like a niche finance term, but it actually affects more people than you might think. We spend a lot of time in this podcast talking about cryptocurrency. This is a market that's much bigger in scale and has a lot more ramifications for people in their daily lives. To talk through what LIBOR is, what went wrong with LIBOR, and now why the industry is moving away from this rate, we're joined by Jason Granite, head of the firm's LIBOR transition efforts, and Beth Hammack, who's our global treasurer for the firm. Jason and Beth, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jake. Beth, let's start with you. What is LIBOR and why does it matter? Sure. LIBOR is a rate that's been around for a very long time, estimated at about 150 years that it's actually been in existence. But it really came to drive the markets about 30, 40 years ago in the 80s when derivatives became very popular. People were looking for a rate that symbolized the front end of the market, that was a floating rate they could use. And as you talked about, it became heavily used in derivatives as well as mortgages, consumer loans, and other products. It's a global rate in that it is attached to a specific currency. So there's U.S. dollar LIBOR. There's sterling LIBOR, there's yen LIBOR. It exists for a number of different currencies. But it's meant to represent where banks could finance themselves in the front end of the market. It also exists in both overnight out to one-year terms. So it's a pretty broad spectrum over time. So it's essentially the cost of money to banks. It's exactly right. It's where banks can borrow from one another in the marketplace. Which determines, in turn, what they can charge for money. Exactly. Uh, Jason, LIBOR was in the headlines a lot several years ago. To say Um, the least. Yeah, and there was this whole issue around manipulation. Explain to us what went wrong and how the industry and regulators responded to that scandal. So there's a real big structural shift in the market over time. As Beth indicated, there were all these tenors and interbanks had a lot of activity lending to each other. But that as we went through the crisis and as QE became a bigger and bigger part of policy, the market of interbank lending in very short tenors actually started to dissipate and become quite scarce. And so that the volume of activity went down significantly. At the same time, the derivatives markets and other markets that you referenced, the mortgage markets and the CLO markets, experienced tremendous growth over the last 10, 20 years. And so you had this balance where tons and tons, or in this case, hundreds of trillions of assets were referencing this LIBOR rate and resetting off it, where the activity that was the underlier that would establish the rate actually went down. So to put it in context, for three-month LIBOR, which is kind of the most ubiquitous, we have something like $200 trillion of global assets that reset off that rate, whereas now we're down to about 300 to maybe $500 million of actual daily activity in three-month bank-to-bank loans. So you have $200 trillion of assets resetting off $300 million of activity. Feels like the world has shifted very, very meaningfully. How are we transitioning and why are we now transitioning away from this rate? I mean, you explained the mismatch between the way in which the price is set and its importance. So what's going on with the transition now, Jason? Yeah, so the regulators came up with a few different things. One is they came up with principles about the best ways to have benchmarks, which is robust underlying activity. And then here specifically in the U.S., the Fed convened a group called the Alternative Rates Reference Committee or the ARC. Let's just call it the ARC. We'll just call it the (laughs) ARC. Yeah. Very similar to NOAA's. So what it was, it was 15 of the major swaps dealers in the derivatives markets because the derivatives were the bulk of those transactions. I referenced something in the neighborhood of $200 in the U.S. 
call it 95% of the exposure, can be in the derivatives markets. And the ARC was really charged with a few things. One, identifying an alternative to LIBOR. Two, what the viable plans for rolling that alternative out. And then three, getting the world comfortable with the language to transition. So documentation language about going from old to new in the event that there was a cessation or an end of the publication of LIBOR, which quite frankly seems like a more and more real event given the indications that regulators have made and specifically the regulator of LIBOR, which is the FCA in London. Jason, one of the criticisms of LIBOR was that it was set by the British Banking Association and not by a real market. Was that a legitimate criticism? Well, you know, it's actually quite interesting because the way LIBOR is calculated is a group of panel banks would answer a question each morning. It's ranged between 16 and 20 panel banks over time as banks have come and gone. They would answer the question at what rate they would lend money to one another Then originally the British Banking Association and later and and more currently the ICE Benchmark Administration would take those different rates, trim the outliers, and publish the mean each day just before noon in the UK, and that would be the LIBOR rate. Those calculations were done largely on expert judgment. They were never really based on – historically never really based on true market transactions. And one of the things that's very important here in the movement to a lot of these new rates and the development of alternative benchmarks is to migrate to rates that really have robust volumes and real transactions under them as opposed to ones that are based on expert judgment and just broad calculations that are done in small groups. Beth, what will the impact of this transition be for markets, for the industry, and for people who have maybe a massive, sometimes the most massive debt they have is denominated in LIBOR Mm. or hooked to LIBOR? First and foremost, I think the impact is going to be hopefully an improvement in safety and soundness. As Jason talked about, we have an enormous market that's referencing a very small market. And that puts some instability and some potential risks in terms of how that underlying market could move and have unanticipated consequences for the rest of the marketplace. So earlier this year, we saw LIBOR widen pretty significantly relative to other reference rates. But again, there wasn't a lot of fundamental activity that was driving it. And it's one of these curiosities of the market as it goes through. That said, it's going to be a really painful transition to get there because there are so many people and so many products that are referencing this rate. It is such a foundational part of our markets. And markets are really creatures of habit. People like to be engaged and involved in things that have a lot of liquidity that makes them feel like their transaction costs are lower, the transparency is better. Even if the underlying nuances of that rate may not be as robust as they want it to be, they still feel there's a lot of their safety in numbers, if you will. Yeah. So they're addicted to what they've been doing, even if it doesn't make a lot of economic sense. So Jason, what's the process for physically winding down LIBOR and moving on to new benchmarks and how long and costly might that be? It's nothing short of uh, enormous for a lot of people. As Beth indicated, it's not just ubiquitous in markets, but it's foundational for how a lot of other things are built on. So you have this alternative rates committee has identified globally that the replacement rates around the world. We're slowly moving through understanding documentation, understanding amount of inventorying of outstanding trades. There's industry groups that are born around the globe by all the central banks to identify all the different aspects of the market. So right now, I would say that we're in like an inventorying phase of understanding where everything is, and that will help define 
the path as we go forward. Right now, here at the end of September, we have three or four open consultations by various industry groups for the world to comment on their views on what's been proposed as language and alternatives for a lot of these places that Beth talked about where the rate is present. And so right now we're inventorying and identifying places to go to prepare for the change. At the same time, we're also seeing development in the new rates. We have somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 billion of issuance and some of these new rates. We're seeing about one a week these days. We're seeing new futures contracts and swap markets start to pop up, referencing the new rates. So people are starting to test the ropes and test the waters of some of these new rates in places so that eventually people can get comfortable as liquidity migrates. So obviously for people to get comfortable is going to be a process, but Are there folks that are resisting this change? Who's not on board with the transition to new rates? I don't know if it's that they're not on board, but there's still a broad education phase that's going on. Clearly, when the central banks convened folks, they started with the major banks. Now they've expanded to major pensions, major users, the exchanges, the CCPs, kind of the usual suspects of folks that would use these types of products or be engaged in this at the highest level. But this spans all the way down to the consumer in many cases when you talk about credit cards or car loans or people's mortgage on their house, et cetera. So it's going to be a process to get from the greatest outstanding impact down to all of the folks that are touching it. Right now, it's a meaningful move through the education process. And for me, I would actually say we're a lot further along than I would have said we would be six months ago when we started really in earnest looking at this as an organization at the beginning of this year. We probably projected where we are now to be where we would be in the first quarter of next year. And so we're seeing development in market, lots of education. There's fluency in a lot more places to talk about it than we were expecting. So actually, quite frankly, it has a a lot of momentum and people are really talking about it. What are some of the similarities between LIBOR, the traditional metric, and the alternative risk-free rates, including the U.S. replacement and some of the other rates that are used around the world? So as we talked about before, one of the core issues with LIBOR is that it is a credit-sensitive rate. A lot of the new rates that we're talking about and looking at in the marketplace are risk-free rates that don't have that same level of credit sensitivity. So in the U.S., the secured overnight financing rate, SOFR, is what it's being called. That's the likely successor for LIBOR. And so it's similar in that it's a short-end rate. It'll float over time, but it's going to be an overnight rate. LIBOR, as Jason had mentioned, was really the most liquid at the three-month point, and it was a prospective three-month credit-sensitive rate. SOFR is a little bit different in that it's a secured rather than unsecured, risk-free. It's based on treasury collateral, and it's an overnight rate. And so there are going to be some hiccups and some nuances as we move through and look at those changes as we move forward. One of the other key differences and one of the primary reasons why SOFR was picked as a replacement rate for the U.S. is that it's an $800 billion market in terms of transactions every day. So again, let's compare LIBOR, the overnight transaction volume that's going through about $300 million. SOFR has about $800 800 billion, but contracts linked to LIBOR are in the hundreds of trillions. So each of these is growing in size, but it'll give us a bit more liquidity to look at. And you talk about the credit risk in LIBOR. So obviously during the crisis, how was LIBOR sensitive to those credit risks that emerged between banks? It was very sensitive. And so what you saw was the other rate that had been really popular is the federal funds rate, which is the target rate used by the Federal Reserve when they look at setting monetary policy 
and when they try to control rates at the front end of the market. But through the crisis, you actually saw that Fed funds LIBOR basis, which had traded pretty consistently in the low double digits, call it 10, 15, 20 basis points, move out to north of 100 basis points through 2008. So there was real credit sensitivity. Now, that was a benefit to banks for some perspective because they had loans that they'd made that were linked to LIBOR. And so as their funding costs widened, as it became more expensive for them to raise money, they were getting that back on the assets that they had on the other side. So they had a match. They had a match. SOFR won't have that. The other reference rates globally, Jason can talk about some of them, are also more geared towards the risk-free government-type rates rather than this credit sensitivity. So that's an issue that banks are going to have to work through. So, Jake, what's interesting is people always viewed LIBOR historically as the risk-free rate. Mm. And then the crisis happened and it exhibited a lot of risk as it widened or blew out relative to other benchmark rates, as Beth just indicated. And so part of what happened is that was an eye-opening experience. So I think one of the good outcomes of what's happened here is the central banks and the industry have put forward what I would argue are true or much, much closer to true risk-free or near-risk-free rates. We were talking about people being on board. None of this. There's a community of folks who want something with the credit sensitivity, and that's where the square peg in the round hole for the market is right now. We have identified fair, good, robust, heavy-volumed, near-risk-free or risk-free rates, yet the market still wants some type of credit experience because a lot of people have lived through the crisis and they want that match that Beth just indicated. And so that's one of the real wrestling matches, trying to figure out exactly how to calibrate for that in this transition phase. That's one of the bigger reconciliations that's taking place. Yeah, and I would just add that I think partly because of some of the regulatory changes that have happened, the fact that the Fed has pushed banks to fund themselves for longer to not use the short-dated markets, you just won't have the same volume going through. It's a fundamental market structure change. You won't have that same volume in the credit part of the market that you used to have. And so it may not be possible to find a credit-sensitive rate that we can use in the near, for the in the near, near term. term. Yeah. Yeah. Beth, you mentioned a notable difference between LIBOR and SOFR, which is that LIBOR is unsecured and SOFR is secured. What does that really mean for the industry? I think the secured versus unsecured, frankly, is less of a problem for the industry than the credit-sensitive, not credit-sensitive part of it. Secured versus unsecured just means that there's theoretically collateral behind it when we're talking about the secured rate. We're talking about governments. And so, again, it is more of a risk-free rate that you're looking at. I think it has more to do with that credit component than secured versus unsecured. In many of the other jurisdictions, they've chosen unsecured rates. But those unsecured rates are more at a risk-free type level. So Sonia in the UK, where you think about that as being more linked to government-type collateral rather than bank-sensitive collateral. Jason, you mentioned that we're a little ahead of pace that some had expected. Talk about the pace of adoption of the risk-free rate on the global stage, and what are some of the barriers to implementation? What are regulators trying to do to help it? There's different speeds in different places, which is also one of the things that we're all reconciling. So start here in the U.S., We've identified the rate. We're starting to see transactions in the rate. There's future contracts with starting to have some liquidity and activity, at least in the first 12 to 18 months part of the market. We're starting to see issuers come to market. As I indicated, we've seen around the first $10 billion specifically in the U.S. dollar market referencing SOFR. So we have the rate. We have contracts. We have things trading. So now let's hop over the pond The Sonya market, that's the rate that Beth talked about as the replacement rate in the UK. They probably have one of the more robust markets of these rates. The Sonya market is pretty well-established over a much longer part of the curve than the US. 
There's already some volume of activity going there. There's obviously transition that needs to happen, but at least there's a little bit more depth of the market. Then we go to Europe, and that's the part of the world that is on the thinnest part of the ice. They just last week announced their replacement rate, Esther, the European short-term rate. Good name, though. Yeah, it is a good name. <laughs> Better than the others, I would say, so far. Uh, so far. So far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the one thing about it is they're not expecting to publish it until next fall. And so whereas we already have robust markets in the other rates, the Europeans aren't even in a place where they're publishing their replacement rate. And more so, they have specific legislated benchmark regime in Europe that from January 2020, which is only 15 months away, the historical rates actually don't even comply. So they need a new rate and they need to get it up and going quickly and it's going to be a really tight window. And then in Switzerland, they've identified their rate. That's obviously a smaller market relative to the markets that we're talking about. But the Swiss National Bank is moving forward and there's activity there. And then going out far east, Japan has identified their rate. There's a lot of consolidation that's going to happen in their market. There's three or four rates that currently operate in Japan. Folks are going to migrate towards the one that's been identified and supported by the industry and the Bank of Japan there. Obviously, there's some different challenges in Japan given the nature of monetary policy and some things that have gone on there, but at least they have identified a rate and starting to move. I think it's a good time to point out that regulators have two choices here. They can apply the carrot approach or the stick approach. And in many central bank discussions and industry discussions, people have been talked about the carrot approach. Should we allow favorable netting treatment for the new transactions or make it very friendly for the new transactions to be born into the market. But the first big move came in the UK and they sent a dear CEO letter out to all banks and insurance companies mandating a board-approved transition plan before Christmas of this year. So tight turnaround and very strong language to making sure people are prepared. London was the most willing to move beyond the London rate. <laughs> yeah, very, quite frankly. And you know, I think part of it is their market was a little bit more developed, as I indicated about Sonia. But if you think about the entities that they're talking to there, they're very heavily involved in U.S. dollar transactions, very heavily involved in euro transactions, et cetera. And so this is going to be a very telling time from now until the end of the year as people prepare for the European regulators. And then it'll be interesting to see what kind of momentum that gets for more issuance, more volume, more activity, more movement to some of the new rates, given regulators are clearly very focused on it with the UK regulators leading that charge. So Jason, what else can we expect from the transition this year? I mean, you covered a lot of the different geographies, but what are the big things you're looking for in the market? For us, we're very much following the activity in the market. So for futures, which the CME has rolled out, has somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 outstanding contracts in SOFR and SOFR futures. We're looking for that number to grow at some continued, very substantial, exponential, parabolic pace to, to see if there's growth that the market is really underlying it. So we're waiting for FASB, the Accounting Standards Board, to release their guidance on how they're going to handle the new rates, SOFR, et cetera, to make sure that they're appropriate for hedge accounting treatment, which is very important to uh, many of our corporate clients and others who use a lot of these rates to hedge different types of risks in the market.
And then I just mentioned what's happening with the UK regulators. There's going to be a rollout of significant plans there, which should spur activity and issuance and other things. And so those are some of the landmarks that we're watching to see if there's meaningful growth in these new rates. And they get the liquidity that can support the move that is needed with the hundreds of trillions that we indicated. But I'd add there's some smaller scale things that we need to happen as well, some of which are just system builds. We have a lot of trading systems, both internally market platforms, that don't know how to handle or process trades that have these daily resets. So some of that work needs to be done. Risk models across the street are highly based off of LIBOR. People are going to have to start migrating away from that as well. So Jason talked about a lot of the really big picture things that we're looking for from a headline perspective, a regulatory perspective. But there's a lot of granular work that's going to need to be done firm by firm to get this implemented. So we recently put one person in charge of our effort on the transition, Jason. Why did we do that? Why is that so important to have one person in charge? We started out the process at the beginning of the year looking at this, looking forward, being involved in a lot of these processes that Jason talked about, and thinking that we could pull this together through our usual coordinated, collaborative Goldman Sachs style. But as we started to dig into it and really go through, we just found this is a much, much bigger scale problem than we've seen before. And we really need the accountability and the coordination to make sure that we have one person driving this effort for the firm, for our clients, to help be a port of call for people who have questions, who have concerns, to make sure that we've got consistent messaging, consistent answers. There are questions that will come in from whether it's clients or regulators with two, three pages lists of different nits that they want to know what's going on in LIBOR space. And those will come in through our classic sales and trading organization, they'll come in through our investment management division. But if one person tries to answer that on their own, they're not going to have the full resource and the full scope or breadth of knowledge that we're pulling together. And so getting Jason, someone who has been in these markets, who's traded in and around the front end before, has passion for this, understands the implications it's going to have on the market, on our clients, on our businesses, we thought was really critical to make sure that we could do this in a world-class way. Jason, Beth mentioned that you recently joined Corporate Treasury from GSAM, or Goldman's asset management business. And you have a background in asset management and actually trading these instruments. Now you're leading a global firm-wide effort. What is Goldman doing to prepare for this transition? And what kinds of questions are our clients asking? We're doing a few different things. We just talked about a moment ago the big industry initiatives, market developments, developments of new products, et cetera. So we clearly have a big focus on making sure that we're participating in those conversations, leading from the front with respect to developing them, making sure that they fit in the spectrum of all the different financial instruments and things that are important to our clients. Then there's also the bottoms-up stuff that Beth talked about a moment ago in relation to system readiness, model calculations, making sure that we have full understanding of how the blocks connect together and making sure that all of our models and technology, et cetera, can accommodate all of the new rates and migrate over. And then on the other side, we're engaging with our clients, whether it be through our private wealth management area, whether it be through our securities division, sales and trading group, whether it be through our investment banking franchise, making sure that we're really out there talking and engaging with clients as they have varying levels of understanding, education, exposures to these different rates, and really supporting them and walking with them side by side as they go through what can be, quite frankly, a scary transition for some of them, given the pervasiveness that this rate has across all different types of markets and asset classes. So Beth, it seems improbable, but you recently celebrated your 25th year at the firm. Yeah, I started when I was 12. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Um, You have a reasonably new job, a big job as the company's treasurer. Talk a little bit about what that means to you, the 25 years you've spent here, and some of the surprises about how your career has evolved at the firm. 
it's been an exciting year, both in terms of my transition to Treasury and in terms of hitting the 25-year milestone. It's something that obviously we pride pretty significantly Goldman Sachs in our quarter century club. And so I was excited to hit that milestone and to be a part of it. But I've seen a lot of different transitions at the firm. Started in 93. And at that time, Lloyd was the desk head. And I interviewed with him before I moved into our derivatives businesses. And so there have been a lot of senior people that I've seen grown up. And so him now transitioning out of the firm, seeing David come into the leadership role is a pretty exciting next transition. One of the things that I will say that's been the constant throughout my 25 years has been that change and that collegiality and that continuing to raise and develop talent over time. It's hard to surprise me with things, but the team was actually able to surprise me with the 25-year celebration on the desk. But like all things at Goldman Sachs, you're right back to work and lots of new challenges ahead to get through. All right. Beth and Jason, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on September 27, 2018. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.